verses 12 through 20. Page 1777, if you're using the Pew Bible in front of you. And then we'll read together the answers on page 44 in the back of the blue on Lord's Day 32. There's two of those tonight. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 12 through 20. God's holy word given to his people for our good. Let us give our attention to its reading. Everything is permissible for me, but not everything is beneficial. Everything is permissible for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. Food for the stomach and the stomach for food. But God will destroy them both. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. By his power, God raised the Lord from the dead, and he will raise us also. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said the two will become one flesh. But he who unites himself with the Lord is one with him in spirit. Flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a man commits are outside his body. But he who sins sexually sins against his own body. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your body. The grass withers and the flower fades. The word of our God endures forever. Question 86. Let us respond together and say the answers. Again, this is part three of the catechism. In the next couple weeks, will lead us into studying the Ten Commandments. Question 86. We have been delivered from our misery by God's grace alone through Christ, and not because we have earned it. Why then must we still do good? To be sure, Christ has redeemed us by his blood. But we do good because Christ, by his Spirit, is also renewing us to be like himself, so that in all our living we may show that we are thankful to God for all he has done for us, and so that he may be praised through us. And we do good so that we may be assured of our faith by its fruits, and so that by our godly living, our neighbors may be won over to Christ. Can those be saved who do not turn to God from their ungrateful and impenitent ways? By no means. Scripture tells us that no unchaste person, no idolater, adulterer, thief, no covetous person, no drunkard, slanderer, robber, or the like, is going to inherit the kingdom of God. Let us consider, then, these words from Paul in 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 6. For the last 26 Lord's Days, we have looked at the deliverance that God has given to us in Jesus Christ. Deliverance from guilt, 
Guilt which we all have, which we all share equally. So the summary up to this point, at least in the last 26 Lord's Days, is that salvation is all of God's grace. If one were to summarize what the last 26 Lord's Days in the evenings have been about for us, you could say this, Christ has set us free. Christ has set us free. All of our sins, all of our guilt, all of the things that embarrass us before a holy and a righteous God, they have been wiped away in Christ by faith. Free grace. His righteousness is given to us in and through that same faith. Simply by believing the gospel, we are given all of the treasures of eternal life. All of the riches of being found in Jesus Christ. To many, this might seem like an ending. That's all you need to know. Jesus cleanses us from every sin and stain, and nothing else needs to be said. A blessed place, perhaps, to end sometimes. But the great mystery of the human life is that when we are raised to spiritual life in Christ, God does not just right then and there raise us up to be with him. He keeps us here, in this age, on this earth. Thus, what are we to do with our time here? How should we spend our lives? What are we called to do? If Christ has set us free, then there are no constraints, right? We are set free from every possibility of condemnation, so we might as well live in whatever way we see fit. This is the problem that God's word addresses in perhaps no uh, place more clearly than in Romans chapter 6. Paul finishes his explanation of righteousness by faith, grace to the one who does not work, but believes in God who justifies the ungodly. His faith is credited to him as righteousness. It is not what we do, but what the Savior has done for us. Paul anticipates the possible Responses that people might have. And perhaps you have heard people say this as you discuss salvation by grace. Particularly, I've experienced this as as I, I speak to people who are skeptical of the Christian life. People who generally see that this world is ordered by morality and that people should do good, but they're skeptical of what the Bible says about salvation. And they'll say something like this. So then it really does not matter what you do or how you live. As long as you do this thing that you call faith, you will be fine. So you might as well sin more because sin is a lot more enjoyable. And if you sin more, God gives more grace and he gets more glory. Right? That's exactly what Paul's responding to in Romans chapter 6. Continue in sin so that grace may abound. To this, Paul gives his famous response, right? May it never be. May it never be. It would be kind of like one of us saying at this point in time, not even close. That's the kind of response that Paul gives. No way, not even close. And what Paul goes on to explain, and what he explains in our text here tonight in 1 Corinthians, is that to indulge in sin is not an exercise in freedom. It is an exercise of bondage and slavery. Christ has died and we are united to his saving death so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Everyone who is born with a sinful nature is born with this enslavement to sin. And Christ sets us free. 
And he has set us free so that we might no longer be enslaved to sin. This sounds tricky to our modern minds, doesn't it? It seems like freedom is present when we are able to do whatever we want. That's how the world thinks of freedom. You are free when you are able to do whatever you want. Freedom is living without boundaries. Uh, one of the shows that, uh, that I sometimes am forced to watch with my eldest daughter, uh, the song that they were singing, No Right, No Wrong, No Rules for Me, I'm Free. Right? That's, the, that's the idea of freedom in this world. It's being able to say yes to whatever you want, right? Well, no. Being free has more to do, biblically, being free has more to do with the ability to say no to something than your opportunity to say yes to something. Being free in the Bible has more to do with your ability to say no to something than the opportunity to say yes to something. If you cannot say no, you are not free. But the world thinks in the, op- in the opposite direction, don't they? We need, to come, we need to overcome this mentality, this mentality that is so present in our world today. And we need to focus on understanding that we are to grow in obedience and submission to God because that is what it means foundationally to be human. To be free is to be in submission to God. This all has to do with the way he has ordered his world and the way that he has ordered us. All of this is connected to the saving message of grace. We must never lose sight of that. As we make our way through this last section of the catechism, we must never lose sight that it is connected to the message of grace. Because of Christ we are declared righteous. Because of Christ we are saved from our sins. And then God begins the long and arduous work of infusing grace into us so that we might be sanctified. We are justified by Christ's imputed righteousness. But in sanctification, God continues to infuse grace, sanctifying grace into our lives that we might continually be made holy. How does this relate then to freedom, this idea of freedom? It does so in this way. Freedom is not something that we get to define, right? In this world, everyone wants to define freedom for, their sel- for themselves. What does it mean to be free? Let me tell you. But freedom is not something we get to define. It is something that is defined by God. It's basic to our lives. Since God is the creator, we are the creatures. He gets to define freedom for us. This is particularly true for the Christian. Not only are we created by the divine author, But we have been bought back by the blood of Christ on the cross so that we might serve him and glorify him in our lives. This is what Paul is saying in this passage here tonight. It matters what we do in our lives. It matters what we do in this bodily existence because our bodies are united to and part of Christ's body. Even more than that, in a special redemptive way, we belong to God as a temple. Paul calls us a temple of God. All of these things coalesce. They combine together to give us the true idea of freedom. The biblical idea of freedom. 
To be free is to belong to God through Christ. It seems counterintuitive to us, doesn't it? But it's true. To be free is to belong to God through Christ and to obey his commands. Looking at what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. First idea, what we do with our bodies matters. It's easy today to think that uh, living for your own pleasure is a new concept. We, we may think that this is something that's, that's come upon us in the last 50 or so years. Each generation within the last century seems like it, it gets new ideas of freedom. And each generation feels more emboldened to try out new freedoms. The self-made man came to a fuller realization in the 50s after World War II in our own country. And in some ways, that paved the way for the sexual revolution of the late 1960s, leading to uh, more openness to different kinds of sexual expression in the 80s and the 90s, to now people feeling uninhibited by something as basic as their sexual gender, which is, in, which is tied to their biological bodies, who God has made them to be. So it may seem like this is somewhat of an enterprise that has happened in the last 50 or so years, but really it reaches much farther back than that. It's not a new way of thinking. We see this at the beginning of the passage tonight as Paul uses a saying that was being used in the Roman world at that time by people who were seeking all kinds of pleasures. Look together with me at this passage. Paul begins by saying, everything is permissible for me. There are other translations that say all things are lawful for me. This would have been used by people in the first century world who had lots of money and power and influence. Back then, the the separation between the poor and the rich was very great. There really was no middle class. And the rich upper class was able to live with very little constraints on their life. They could live, really, however they wanted or so they thought. A first century author put it this way. He said this, Whoever is permitted to do whatever he wishes is a free man. Whoever is not is a slave. You had these these lifestyles and cultures where the rich upper class was able to live in uninhibited ways. They could say yes to everything. But slaves, servants, could not. They could not live whatever way they wanted to. To be rich meant you could do anything you wanted. Life had given you that freedom, and so many people did just that. They enjoyed that freedom and said, all things are lawful for me. Indulging in all kinds of gluttony and debauchery and licentiousness, that was a common way of life for the rich aristocracy in the Greco-Roman world. It was how they spent much of their time using the freedoms that they had been given so that they could enjoy the most pleasure. This is shown to us in the next phrase which Paul borrows, which we see in verse 13. He says, food for the stomach and the stomach for food. Or food is made for the stomach and the stomach for food. In other words, I have a stomach. And that proves that I should get pleasure out of eating. That's one of the sayings that was going around in Paul's day. I might as well eat as much as I can and as often as I can. The stomach is for eating, so eat well. You can see how this saying would be shifted to many different spheres of life. The body is for sex. The body needs sleep. 
I may as well get as much of those as I can. This thinking was present, apparently, in the Corinthian church. Paul is seeing the need to address it. And there were some who thought that this mentality lined up with Paul's teaching. The gospel sets us free. Therefore, all things are lawful for me. The gospel sets us free. And the food, food was made for the stomach and the stomach for food. Though people who were calling themselves Christians were going around trying to live like this, claiming that it was in line with Paul's teaching. We see how in many ways in our world, this is not only still a present way of thinking, but a much more common way of thinking now than it ever was back then. Now we don't have these, these class-ordered constraints, do we? The average person in the developed world has the freedom, resources, opportunity to live while indulging the flesh, just like the rich upper class did back then. And so there aren't these constraints on our lives anymore. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. Saw a saying this week, it said, care about others, but live for yourself. I saw another one just next to it. It said, don't let anything get in the way of your happiness. Don't let anything get in the way of your happiness. These are all the false gospels of the world, aren't they? God has something so much better, so much more fulfilling for for us. Not using this life for temporary pleasures, but being redeemed for eternal life. That is God's purpose for us in this life, that we might be redeemed for eternal life. But this present evil age is stuck thinking, do whatever you can to have as much happiness as you can. We see how there is a low view of our bodies in light of this mentality. Your body is not intrinsically good. They would say that your body is simply an instrument to use for your happiness. Use it. Use it to become happy. Let us eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. Your body is a way to attain happiness. You see, it's a low view of the body. Significantly, this is very ironic, isn't it? And Paul shows us that at the end of verse 12. Though the upper class of Paul's time was, uh, and most people of our day believe that when they live the way that they want to, when they say yes to all the things that they, they, they think they want to say yes to, they're living as free men or free women, Paul shows us that just the opposite is true, doesn't he? He says, I will not be mastered by anything. In other words, to do things because you feel a desire to do them, To say yes to something, to satisfy longings that we feel, is to be held in slavery to these desires. It is not that they can say yes to these things. That's not what Paul is saying. Paul is saying that they cannot say no. When you can't say no to something, you are not free. Therefore, they are enslaved to their sin. Paul gives a view that is perhaps strange-sounding to us, right? It it, it grades against our modern ears, our modern sensibilities, but it accords with Scripture. People would say, what is more free than acting to satisfy your desires? The Bible would say what is more free is resisting those desires. A free man in Rome, it was thought, would be someone who could look at anything in the world. It could be Jay Gatsby, right? Nothing will stop me. Nothing will inhibit me from saying yes to anything. He would say, yes, I will. 
But Paul shows us that true freedom comes in saying, I will not. True freedom comes in saying, I will not. And saying so when it accords with God's commands. This is the mentality of the Christian. If we cannot be moved, we cannot be controlled. If we cannot be dominated, we are indomitable. To be held by God and to realize our salvation by grace that frees us from the power of sin and the ability and gives us the ability to say no. Paul cuts against the grain of common thinking here regarding the body by pointing uh, not only to God as creator, but as redeemer. That is what he does in verses 13 through 14. Look with me together at those verses. Verse 13, Paul says that God will destroy both food and the stomach. What he is saying is that our dependence on food is a temporary thing. Our dependence on food is a temporary thing. But that does not mean that our bodies are temporary. Look at verse 14. By his power, God raised the Lord from the dead, and he will raise us also. It is the resurrection of the dead. It is the resurrection of Christ, which reminds us of the abiding importance of our physical bodies. We are whole persons. We are not just souls that are enclosed by bodies, that are covered by bodies, but we are bodies united to souls. The Westminster Catechism reminds us that even when our bodies lie in the grave, they are still united to Christ. The Bible makes this very clear that God values our bodies. They matter, and they matter because of the resurrection of Christ. They matter to God, and they ought to matter to us. This is why Paul says the body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. The resurrection is what gives all of this clarity. Our physical selves matter to God. He proves this to us in the resurrection. The body is not a temporary thing, but there are temporary things which we experience now. Hunger, fatigue, sexual desire, all of these point forward to the fact that one day we will have bodies and also feel perfectly blessed in the presence and the joy of the Lord. All of these temporary needs point us forward to the resurrection, don't they? Paul also says that our bodies are joined to Christ, our physical bodies. The resurrection teaches, about the, teaches us about the importance of our physical bodies because it points us forward to that perfect blessedness of eternity. And since Christ has already been raised, we share in the resurrection life that he has undergone. This is the mystical power of the resurrection that we live in now by the Holy Spirit. Paul calls this the inner self, the life of the new man. He says, though our outer selves are wasting away, our inner selves are being renewed day by day. But Paul is not, by saying that, devaluing our physical bodies. Because even though our physical bodies are in a state of deterioration, a state of wasting away, that does not mean that they are not joined to Christ. There's a fascinating truth that Paul brings out in this passage. Our physical bodies now are joined to Christ. He calls them members of Christ. How often we think that the life of salvation in this life now is merely spiritual. It's immaterial. 
that our bodies are disconnected from it. And Paul says, no, it's just the opposite. God's word cuts through that mentality. Paul says this to show the futility of disregarding the importance of our bodies when we consider how to live. What he's trying to do is to show us that our physical selves are bound up with questions of right and wrong. Our physical selves are bound up with morality. At this time in history, and this is what Paul is really addressing here in this passage, at this time in history, the wealthy would often uh, have parties and celebrations that would divulge into these public displays of licentiousness, right? You'd begin with gluttony. Gluttony would give way to drunkenness, and drunkenness would give way to sexual sin. And since the rich upper class could afford it, oftentimes the host of these parties would provide prostitutes for those who were in attendance. Apparently, the problem in Corinth is that some were not seeing how this did not match up with the Christian life. They weren't understanding that this is out of accord with what Paul has been preaching and teaching us. So Paul says to them, to do that is to rend off a piece of Christ's body and join it to a prostitute. This is Frankenstein in the worst way. And this is why Paul warns us in his epistles in in places like Galatians and uh, Colossians where he warns us against orgies because this was the way of life in the Greco-Roman world. This is what the rich upper class did. But the Spirit has made us one with Christ. Paul has our bodies in view here. So we must resist the temptation to see what he says in verse 17 as something immaterial. Paul warns against this bodily sin because it is against our union with Christ, a union which our physical bodies have even now. Not only is it a sin against Christ's body, but it is a sin against our own bodies. This is what he says in verse 18. Flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a man commits are outside his body, but he who sins sexually sins against his own body. Paul is referring to what he says at the end of verse 16. You see how he referred to Genesis there. He said, the two shall become one flesh. And this, of course, is the great mystery, which is present even at the creation story. Sex changes something about our identity. Two people become one flesh. And it is for this reason that God has prescribed it for marriage, so that it may flourish in that relationship. Paul says all of this, which leads up to his final point in our passage tonight, where he stresses that our whole selves, including our bodies, belong to God through the redemption of Christ. Temples are places that are holy, and they are places that belong to God. And Paul calls our bodies temples of the Most High God, the triune God of Scripture. Therefore, as we have been seeing, our bodies are to be set apart for God, for His service. And they actually belong to him. Our bodies belong to him. Paul says this in order to compel us to live in obedience to God's commands. That's what he's trying to do here tonight. But it is not simply the command that will get us to live in obedience, will it? We know that to be true. It's not simply the command. And Paul knows that too. For embedded in these last two verses, there is a a proclamation of a transforming gospel. 
that is powerful enough to change each and every heart that hears it. As Paul speaks of these sometimes very uncomfortable things, it's hard not to be reminded of the biblical story of the prophet Hosea and Gomer. There we read where Hosea was commanded by God to go and marry a prostitute as a way to illustrate God's own love and his own mercy for his people. God said to Israel, though you have been unfaithful to me, I will be faithful to you. Though you live like you do not know me, I will live with the deepest commitment to you. That is the transforming grace of God. That is the power of the gospel. Knowing and understanding and growing in our understanding of that. That God has said that to each and every one of us in the gospel. That is what transforms hearts. Christ has set us free. That's what changes us. That's what transforms us. Our second daughter was just born. Her name is Charlotte, which is a French word which means free. In the months leading up to her birth, I was thinking about this idea of freedom. What is biblical freedom and and how do we understand these things that that Paul says here? And I was thinking about how it took me 30 years to finally realize that what the world holds out as freedom is a complete lie. It's completely the opposite of what the Bible says is freedom. Freedom is not the opportunity to say yes to something. It's not the opportunity to do whatever you want. Freedom is the ability to say no to something. When we say no, we are free. I was thinking so often, leading up to the birth of of our daughter, I was thinking so often about Galatians 5.1, for freedom Christ has set us free. But what does Paul say right after that? He says, stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. What does it mean to stand firm? What does that mean? It means to say no. To stand firm is to say no to the things that try and take away our loyalty and our commitment to Christ. When our loves are strong, our loyalties will be strong. And that's why God wants us to grow in love through the gospel. Thus, see tonight, brothers and sisters, how Paul weaves together this proclamation of the gospel. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Therefore, stand firm. Therefore, say no to the principalities and the powers of this age that are arrayed against you, that are pulling on all of your affections, trying to pull you away from Christ. Paul does the same thing in this passage here tonight at the end. You are bought with a price. So glorify God in your bodies. Your bodies which belong to God. Your bodies which are united to Christ. Your bodies which are temples for God. He has washed us white as snow. But we weren't always white as snow, were we? When we think about the story of Hosea and Gomer... That is really quite similar to what Jesus has done for us, isn't it? For the holy and eternal Son of God came down out of heaven as a perfect and a perfectly pure prince 
of peace. But he did not come to marry a chaste princess, did he? He did not come to find a bride that was a match for his purity. Jesus came to claim for himself a bride who up to that point had been unfaithful to the one who had made her, who had scorned the name of her creator and who had run off to other gods and to all of the idols of the world. Friends, each and every one of us, all of us gathered here tonight, were like Gomer. And Christ came to pay the bride price for us that he might take us, that he might take this undesirable and unfaithful one and make her his bride. Though we have been cleansed in the blood of Jesus Christ and made white as snow, it was not always that way for all of us. God himself came and he found us He found us in the red light district and gave his very life to make us his bride. Until we understand that each of us stood in that place, that each of us bear all of these similarities to Gomer, until we understand that, we will never fully grasp the weight of this sentence by Paul. You were bought with a price. All of us are reminded of this as we struggle and fight against the lusts of the flesh and the lusts of the old man. We live uh, saying like Paul in Romans 7, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Christ will. And Christ has. In a strange and mysterious way, Christ has already delivered us. And though our bodies still deteriorate, though our bodies still experience the fall and and they waste away and they struggle with the old sin nature. Even still, they are united to Christ and they belong to God through the price of Christ's very life, which he gave to purify his bride, though she was just like Gomer. We have all been unfaithful. But through the promise of Christ, We can now be faithful. He makes us his own. He makes us his own. And he gives us a firm place to stand. That's what the gospel is. It gives us a place to stand. And the place to stand is his perfect righteousness. We stand upon what he has done for us. And by his spirit, he sets us free from the power of sin. And he gives us the ability to say no. For when we can say no against the powers of this evil age, when we can say no, we are free. We are free because we belong to God. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Therefore, stand firm. You were bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God with your bodies. Let's pray. What a great... Savior, we have come tonight, Father, to remember. He stooped down to save us, though we deserved it not, though we all were unfaithful. And so, Father, call us back to yourself tonight. Remind us of the grace of the gospel. May we never think 
that we earned it. May we never think that we deserved it. And may we take so seriously the call you have placed upon each of us to glorify you. Father, we fall short in so many ways. So may that humble us. And may that remind us of the perfection of our Savior who lived and died for us. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for salvation. By your Spirit, make all of those things real to us this evening. In Christ's name, amen. Number 48 in our blue.